Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, my name is Franklin Bennett, and I'm married to Reed Bennett. I know most of you in here, but some of you I don't. So uh, I grew up at Otter Creek. My dad's Frank Bennett. He's an elder here. Jen's my mom. Uh, we have two girls, Lane and Laura Lee, who are fifth grade and third grade. And I may, I'm coming before you today for a few minutes. I wanted to um, just make you aware of or kind of you know, remind you of a ministry here at Otter Creek that, that Reed and I co-lead with, with Jeannie Cagle called Freedom Prayer. And I come in for a couple of reasons. Um, I'll tell you those in a second. But Freedom Prayer is just a ministry of uh, a team at Otter Creek who's been trained in kind of this way to just go after the Lord with people in prayer sessions. Um, we get together in groups of, of three trained Freedom Prayer team members and a person who wants to come and receive prayer. And we just kind of open-handedly, hands-off, help them kind of ask the questions to seek after the Lord, uh, to go after anything that might be hindering their relationship with Him. You know, it could be you know, past wounds, uh, beliefs about God that aren't true, um, entanglements they may be in, sin from the past, uh, just anything that He wants to bring up so that He can get it up and off of them. And we've just seen him work powerfully in these sessions, in our own lives, really. I'll give my testimony in a minute. But, um, and the lives of others as well. Just that he, he just is amazing to be faithful, like he says he is, when we gather in groups of two or three, that he says, I'm there. Like, we don't have to wonder. We claim that promise. He says, I'm there. And we've just seen him move and bring up the exact thing that needs to be brought up so it comes up and off of them. And then to speak truth back into that place, to not leave them you know, empty, in that spot, but to fill it back up with truth that they, that they now live out of. You know, I thought I was this way. I thought this was who I was. I thought, I thought I had to carry this. And for God to say, no, well, let me take that. And here's who you really are. And here's what I want to give you in the place of that. This piece of me. Um, and so we've just, we've just been so blessed by being in sessions with people, and as well as having our own sessions. Um, just kind of be transparent with you. Uh, Reed and I have been married 20 years, and the first big chunk of that, we just struggled a lot. Um, and a lot of that was my fault. I, I kind of, you know, I was a Christian, I said, but I, there was a lot of aspects I wasn't living the way Jesus would want me to live. I was kind of just detached from God, um, kind of an idea of, of what He was. But I just kind of let my mind go wherever it wanted to, um, which led to, which led to pornography. Um, and that led to an emotional affair with a friend of ours who just kind of just an inappropriate connection with them. And that, that came to the surface. And I confessed to Reed and, and, and of course, through hurt and, and through working through things, through going to counseling, um, we, we worked through that, but we hadn't healed from that. We hadn't gotten the, the, the heart-level healing that we need. And so when you touch that place in her, she'll tell you like, like that, it, it, it was tender. It, it, was, it, was, it was raw. And freedom prayer in no small way, um, she gave her testimony at the women's retreat if you were there last week, so I'm not putting words in her mouth, but she would tell you it, it helped her really forgive me, to kind of actually name the reasons why she needed to forgive me, the reasons, the ways I had wronged her, kind of name those so she could get them off of her and then get that need met from the Father. You know, not have to get what she was trying to get from me, but get it met from the Father. And for me... It helped me just move past it, that I, that I thought I, that's just the way I was. I was made this way. This is who I am. And that since I've done this now, you know, I'm kind of relegated to the B team, that, that I can come back and be in the circle, but I can't really, you're not going to be doing much in the kingdom. And God says, no, you're a son, like the prodigal. No, 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 you're my son, Franklin, and you have a role, and this is who you are. And, and I've just, the freedom prayer and those sessions with the Lord, with two or three believers, and just kind of asking questions of God, 
just kind of revealed those things to me and helped me just heal up from it and walk out whole. And so I come before you today just for two reasons. One, to kind of make you aware of freedom prayer and to just hold it open-handedly that, that maybe you look into having a session yourself. Um, it, it, it's very hands-off. It's very just asking questions of the Lord. We refer people often to counseling sometimes if that's, if that's needed. Counselors refer to us if, if kind of more of a spiritual level healing is needed. Um, and we're not experts. Like we're lay people. Like we've been trained in freedom prayer, but we just ask questions of the Lord. It's, it's kind of the, the impetus of what is, is done in a session. And so that's the first encouragement. The second encouragement, and this is, this is late notice, but I'm, I'm praying and being faithful that God may move some of your hearts. We need you all in the ministry. Like we, we have a couple elders. My dad went to a training, and he's on the freedom prayer team. Carrie Patterson, um, Mike Cagle is on the freedom prayer team. We need your wisdom in these sessions. Um, and I say that to let you know, there, there's a training this weekend, and I know a lot of you probably have, already have plans, but if you find yourself free this weekend, there's a training at Church of the City Franklin. It's a Friday evening from like 6 to 8.30, and a Saturday most of the day from 8.30 to 9. And I just want to extend the invitation to you all, and I'll send the link to Paulette if you want to look into it, but just an invitation for you all to come and just hear what freedom prayer is. Um, and, to, and to be trained in it. I, I go to a lot of these trainings and just teach a small piece of it, but my heart is just filled up every time to hear testimonies, to hear stories, to hear truth about how the Lord wants to relate to us. Um, the ministry is kind of based on the parables in Luke 15, where he kind of lays out, here's the ways that you get stuck. You know, the lost coin, the prodigal, the older brother, uh, the, the lost sheep. Here's the ways you get stuck, and here's, here's my ways for getting you out of these things. And we've just seen him be faithful to apply these things in prayer sessions that he shows us in Scripture um, and for, for it to bring true healing. I mean, our, our team could just tell you countless testimonies from ourselves and from people we pray with that will get back in touch with it and say, man, things are different now. I, I see things differently. I'm not living in that anymore. Uh, for me, you know, anger is not the first thing that pops up with me anymore. It's not the first instinct anymore. Like, God's, God's dealt with that. And so... We need you all because we need your wisdom. We need, we need people in, at, in your stage of life uh, to speak into these prayer sessions and to, to be a part of that ministry with us. And so um, I would love to tell you more about it. I would love to, if you want to reach out to me through the email uh, to tell you more, to meet with you. I would love it if you happen to be free next weekend to come to that training and just, just learn more about what the ministry is about. So thank you for giving me a few minutes to share, and I, I appreciate that. Thanks, yeah, thank you all. <laughs> Well, good morning. So I, I was, I don't know why I have a, a memory for strange things, but, but a few years ago, Randy Lowry spoke here at Otto Creek, and he said that every time he, he, would, he would take his mother to church with him when he preached, and she would always, on the way home, would try to say something encouraging or positive to him about about his sermon, and so he said, he said, one Sunday, mom gets in the car, and she said, well, son, you didn't have much to say, but you said it very well, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I kind of hope that that's not the case today, so when I got, when I got Paulette's email about the, you know, at the class, and she had mentioned about things that I've done mainly through work, on a national, local, and state le level, uh, mainly involving politics and community service, 
that I had not thought about talking about any of that stuff. So, because I've been focused on lessons from my life, and uh, you got, can you hear okay, Laura? Apparently not. Okay. Okay, so, so what I'm going to do, so um, I, I forgot to wear my watch. So when it comes time to wrap up, someone call time out. So it, okay, so, so uh, well, I was born and raised in West Virginia. And as most people know, you want the E in West Virginia stands for intelligence. <laughs> and of course, the old joke, most of you know that the toothbrush was invented in West Virginia. Had it been invented anyplace else, they would have called it a teeth brush. <laughs> and, um, but I was born and raised in West Virginia in Lincoln County. Uh, county seat is Hamlin. And uh, my dad was on the Board of Education, and he was an elder in the Church of Christ. And so my identity growing up was I was Frank Brumfield's son. So when I was... Um, 12 years old, I was baptized. I've always had a heart. I don't remember a time in my life where the desire of my heart wasn't to please God. Not a, I don't remember a time. So my mother came and talked to me about being baptized. And that was certainly, I was certainly willing to do that. But I thought when I was baptized, somehow what I had gotten out of church to that point was that, okay, anything you've done pre-being baptized, you're forgiven of, and so you're free of sin, you obviously have turned your life over to God, therefore you will be sin-free. And then I discovered, in a matter of days, that I must be different. That I'm still doing the little sneaky prankstery kind of things that, that uh, at least I did. And, uh, and I thought, what's going to happen to me? So uh, most of you are, you look Church of Christ. But uh, <laughs> most of you, so in the Church of Christ, if you don't know, at least in, in my neck of the woods, if you do something of a public nature that mainly brings embarrassment to the church, you have to go forward at church. And uh, you never have to confess what you did. They just, the elder or the preacher would just say, um, he brought reproach upon the church. So for, I was baptized at 12. I had to go forward to church at least once a year until I got out of high school. And I, it wasn't like I was robbing banks, but I did things that I didn't think through completely. One day, going to my sophomore, the, this lady that taught some social studies, she, because my dad was on the board, I think, and my sister, my sister, older sister, they were just goody two-shoes. And, and so it's not that she thought I was a goody two-shoes, but she thought I would probably be more like them. So she had asked me, because she wasn't going to be, be in the class that day, so what I said at her, her, her desk, and make the assignment, you know, whatever. And then if people act up, write their names down or something. So walking down the hallway, 
to that class, this just, I'd never thought about it before the moment, but I started telling the cl this class that the principal's grandmother had died. And now the principal was in his 60s. So I'm little, he'd got a grandmother. So I, I said, the principal's grandmother, Mr. Asper's grand, uh, grandmother had died, and we're taking up a collection for flowers. And so we passed, passed around a hat and took up less than five dollars, probably about three dollars or four dollars. And Gary Smith, is a, who's a, my best friend in high school, he and I and a couple other guys, we went camping on Cold River that weekend. And as loony as that, as ill thought out as that may sound, if Edgar Stowers hadn't gone, hadn't seen the principal the next week, to express his condolences, I would have gotten away with that. So I had to go forward to church. But it was just stuff like that. And um, uh, so I came, I always wanted to go to college, not because I wanted an education, but because I didn't want to, I didn't, most of the people in Lincoln County went to work uh, in, in, in at the chemical plants in South Charleston and I didn't want to do that, and, uh, uh, and I had worked as a laborer uh, all through high school for brick layers and such, and um, so I had heard the, the librarian say one day, when I was a sophomore, about the higher percentage of people who completed college who went away to school. Well, my mom and dad, they were going to send me to West Virginia State and which is in driving distance. And most people that go to West Virginia, stay home, at least in Lincoln County, they would, you know, whenever would come on, words would get bad, they miss class, they get behind and they drop out. And so there was a guy named Roger Kaufman who graduated from Lipscomb, well, excuse me, he graduated in 63. So Roger was preaching in Rome, Georgia, Rome, Rome, um, Ohio, and he held a gospel meeting at our church, and he had all of his backlogs. We'd never heard of Lipscomb. And we're looking at those backlogs and just kind of drawn into that and Roger's stories and all. So I talked my parents into sending me to Lipscomb. And so I went to Lipscomb. I paid a third of it by my, what I worked in the summer. Um, I got a loan from the bank that covered another third, and then my parents paid a third. Then my mother sent me ten. My, my mom and dad sent me ten bucks a week for spending money. And then I always worked on campus at two or three jobs, and so that was my Lipscomb thing. And um, okay, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to go back to family and all that stuff later. I want to get the political stories out of the way. Now it's not that I don't like talking about this stuff because I do. I just had these other things that. Uh, really important to me, but I, I do like to tell these stories. So I thought I would tell uh, the story that people seem to enjoy the most. And John was there. It was in uh, 1980, the Republican convention in Detroit. John uh, was there working with us as a photographer. And uh, anyway, so the story is how George Bush became vice president. 
If you may, you may remember that the big, the big question about that convention wasn't who the nominee was going to be. It was going to be Reagan. He had that locked up. But who was he, who was he going to pick as his vice president? And there was no, no clear choices or guess at who, at who that might be. So I, my client was, was the Republican National Committee. And uh, so we were there at the convention because they put on the convention. And um, so I had a, um, another photographer assigned to Bill Brock, who was chairman, to, you know, meet Brock in his suite in the morning and stay with him all day until he gets back at night. And then after the convention, we can get all these pictures together and then we're going to lay them out on a huge table. And then Brock and I were going to talk about the, the most significant pictures and put together a photo cut line book uh, behind the scenes at the convention kind of thing as a Christmas gift. So that, you know, that, that's going on. But I don't check, that photographer doesn't check in with me. He just, you just stay with Brock and I'll see you when the convention's over. And, and, um, so what, what happened, and I won't say who said what, when, and how I put all this together. So on Wednesday or Thursday of that week, um, George Bush had given his, um, he had cut his speech short because he had been told that he wasn't going to be the, the VP. And he had gone, returned to his room, which was at the Holiday Inn. And um, what had happened was, um, which was leaked to the press to Walter Cronkite, Cronkite that uh, President Ford had been asked to be Reagan's VP. And what, what that happened, so there on the, I think the 70th floor, on the 69th floor, or 70th floor of the, at the, hotel, the Renaissance Hotel up there, there were three suites. Brock had some rooms. Uh, Ford had some rooms and Joe Rogers had some rooms. And so the deal was that Ford's people, when I say people, I don't mean an entourage, I mean two people, were not giving Ford the message that Reagan's people wanted to meet with him. So finally, there's this one picture that's a silhouette of Bob Dole and Bill Brock and I forget someone else, meet, catching forward at the elevator, service elevator, the night before they met, saying, will you please meet with some of us in the morning, and we'll use Joe Rogers' suite to have the meeting, neutral ground. Joe, of course, did not know what, he was just asked, could we use your suite? So I've got the pictures from that meeting. There all the Republican hierarchy and in the land were in, were, were in the room. And uh, uh, now Ford and Reagan, well, I know that Ford doesn't care for Reagan. And I doubt that Reagan had the same disdain for Ford that Ford had for him, because that's just not in his nature, not in his DNA. But anyway, and, and I'd say it was justified on Ford's part, too. But uh, so what happened when it was leaked, all, you know, every, everything's a buzz. Um, finally, at the apex of the, ten, of the tension, 
uh, Ford walks down the back stairs, 70th floor to the 69th floor, and goes into, and Reagan had the whole floor, goes back in the suite, but back in the bedroom, tells uh, Re Reagan that he's not going to, he's not going to accept it. Reagan comes out, he tells his entourage that's in the suite that Ford has turned him down, and they go into hysterics, you know, ungrateful and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so Re Reagan, as we now know, is basically a consensus decision maker, meaning that, you know, what, who all do you think? Who, who's the next on the list was his, what he asked. Well, his, the people in the room could not come up with a consensus. And they were going back and forth for an extended period of time. Then I'm told the room got quiet because Reagan went over and picked up the phone. And the next, and the room gets quiet. And the next thing they hear is Reagan saying, George, will you be my running mate? So it happened. It was no more complicated. You know, people have been elected homeroom monitors <laughs> with, with more thought. But, uh, but that's, how, that's how he became. Uh, and most people don't know that. that I don't know, I've not seen that story in print. Not that it's not there somewhere. The debate, where were we? I will tell you a story about Alexander Haig and Henry Kissinger. These are cute stories. Um, I really don't care for either one of them. But um, uh, Haig is arrogant and Kissinger is uh, pompous and arrogant. And, uh, but, uh, but I do like these two stories. So for the first job in politics that, that Kissinger ever had was he uh, was named a special assistant to the governor of New York, to uh, Rockefeller. And uh, so he, he hadn't been there that long. And Kissinger had done some paper on some big topic and had turned in his paper to the governor's secretary, who then gave it to Rockefeller. Henry comes into his office the next day, and on, on the cover of the paper, it's been returned to his desk, and it said, there's a note that says, Henry, is this the best you can do? So he gets, ugh. So he's saying, so he's trying, to, he's trying to figure out what he missed. And so he pours over that, tries to tweak it, turns it back in again, comes in the next day, it's the same document now is back on his desk with the note, Henry, is this the best you can do? Did that three days in a row. So finally, Kissinger's had enough. He goes in to Rockefeller's office, the governor's office, and says, why do you keep asking me, is this the best I can do? And, and Rockefeller says, well, is it the best you can do? He said, yes. He said, good, I'll read it. <laughs> and then another one on, on Haig and Kissinger. So, so they, we were at uh, Sea Island, Georgia, the cluster, as I call it, the cloister. And um, it's a Republican Eagles event, and these are the high dollar people and all. 
And uh, two of the speakers for that weekend was uh, Haig and Kissinger. And uh, so Haig tells this story on, uh, in introducing Henry. Not in, probably not in introducing him, just when he had his, his, his time to talk. He said that when he, when Haig, when I was chief of staff to, to uh, Nixon, and Henry, I think, probably was uh, um, national security, that Nixon had been asked to speak to the National Press Corps one day at noon club. And he had, he's depressed, as we all, all now have learned. And so 30 minutes before, he tells Haig to go tell Henry, I don't feel like talking. You go over and talk to those people. So he says, I go into Henry's office, and he, he, uh, I tell him, the president wants you to go cover for him in 30 minutes, topics, whatever. And uh, he said, I laughed, and I said, well, Henry, you can tell them everything you know on that subject in five minutes. <laughs> and Haig uh, says, he looked back at me with piercing eyes, and he said, I can tell them everything we both know in six. Uh, I will tell you I'll tell you some I'll call you, yeah, President Ford I'll tell, I'll tell you one or two Ford stories one or two Reagan stories so somewhere back there in the early 80s I had this idea to put together these dinners called Salute to Productivity in association with the Associated Bills and Contractors nationally. And the way it would work is that I would staff and orchestrate the fundraising thing. It's, it buy, basically, it's, you know, buy a $10,000 table kind of stuff. And, and we would do it, do it in 10 cities. And then I got an agreement. I met with Ford at Joe Rogers' house and, and uh, pitched him on the idea early on, of course. He agreed to the, to the 10, so we did those for about a year. The first one we did, and I'd been around Ford before, but never like this. Uh, so I had, the, the routine would be, so I, we, we, and we wanted to do them in cities where it would be a big deal to have a former prayer president. And believe me, in, in the 80s, having a former president was a big deal in Midland, Texas. <laughs> and um, in fact, they didn't have a, a, a hotel large enough to host the, the black tie event. So we, we, you know, we first go to the hotel, to the suite, we go through our little stuff. Then we go over to the hotel, over to the convention center, which could host the thing. And then, and so, and so, um, but anyway, we get to the, we get to, the, and this is the first time I'm with him, with just the two of us. So we're, we're there, and they, uh, we first do a VIP event, which is the only place you get your picture made, and those for people who bought or sold two tables. And, um, and then we go, he and I went to a holding room, and for about an hour, and then we go do the event. Me to leave. And uh, so we go in this holding room, which is about as big as about one fourth the size of this room. 
and it was sparsely furnished, and so, and I'm not nervous around Ford, and for some reason I really haven't been nervous around these kind of people. So we're sitting on this sofa, there's only one place to sit, is a sofa. And we're sitting there, oh, and at the VIP event, they gave Ford a pair of very nice cowboy boots, and they gave me a pair of cowboy boots. Ford's shoe size is 10 and a half D. And uh, so we're sitting at that sofa. There's nothing. There are no cell phones. So there's nothing to do. If we're there for an hour. So he puts his hand up on the back of the arm, arm of the couch. And he looks down. And he says, hey, Steve, what do you think those boots cost? Well, I thought that was kind of funny. That here's he's been a former president. Why would he be impressed with the, with the cost of a pair of very nice cowboy boots? And I said, well, President Ford, I know what yours cost. I know what mine cost. The pair they gave me cost 750 bucks. And the pair they gave you cost 1250 bucks. He goes, really? I said, yeah, that's what they cost. And um, which I think is, uh, Gerald Ford is very much like probably your father or grandfather. He, uh, he's frugal. He never thought he would be a vice president. His goal, political, was to be Speaker of the House, which never happened, but to be the majority leader in the House. In fact, even when he retired as vice president, he lived in a rented house at Beaver Creek at first. So he was always mindful of, 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 of small things like that and, um, and very great, grateful. And uh, so, of course, so we're going from, okay, so we leave this Midland, Texas thing, and it just on this event, he and I are flying together. So we get in the, the little mo the motorcade, which is about three cars. We get in our car, and, of course, he puts his hand on, on, the, on the top of the car before he gets in. He, he yells back at Lee Simmons, his valet, and he said, Lee, don't forget those boots. So we, we get to the airport, and so we're in a citation jet, executive seating. So he's sitting here, I'm sitting here, facing the front. There are three agents on the plane, and then there's Lee Simmons. And um, so the flight from Midland, Texas to Chicago is about two and a half hours. And pretty much that whole time, we either talked or he read newspapers. Newspaper after newspaper, and, 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 uh, uh, and he, he was not feeling well that night, and yet he was, uh, I thought he always got kind of a bum rap as, as not being bright. But if you're, I mean, you know, if you're 70 years old and you're swimming and you're leading this kind of lifestyle, that's pretty good. You, 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 can, you ought to be allowed to stumble every now and then. So, uh, I will tell you one quick. So, to get to we get to Chicago, and there they they opened up Midway wasn't even open then, but they opened it up for for his plane to land. So we land like at two o'clock in the morning. I'm notoriously known by not carrying cash, and I had twenty five dollars in my pocket and a check, and my thought well, and I knew I was going to be flying into, you know, but I thought we were going to land at the O'Hare Airport, 
and I'd go over to that hotel right across from the airport, and I would check in, which I had not reserved a room, but I had checked, I was going to check in, and then get them to cash me a check. Well, when you fly into Midland, it's about an hour or so away from O'Hare, so there goes my 25, in fact, it didn't cover the cab fare. So I get in the cab fare, and I tell this guy, I'm still in black tie. I tell this guy, I said, I only got 25 bucks. Will you do it for that? He said, yeah, you will. Takes me there. I go in, but I'm going to go in and get a check. So the hotel is full. I can't get a room. I then go over to the airport, which is basically shut down for all practical purposes, change into something like this, and sit there until 7 a.m. And I thought, and I was reading my paraphrase Bible, and I thought, now look at you, look at yourself, Mr. Big Shot. You're so you, you know, you've been with the president for you know seven or eight hours, and who cares? What's <laughs> like good is doing you? And uh, and then then on Reagan, the thing that the thing that struck has always struck me most about him is. Uh, he never, he's never met a stranger. He would carry on a conversation with a, and enjoy it with a chair. Uh, he wants to, if he were here, he'd want to tell you about this stand and where this wood or whatever it is came from. And he just, he just, he, he will talk uh, and it's on and on. So that's the first photo session that I did with him in the White House, which was after he was shot. Um, we did it at three different places. But in the Oval Office, we were in there for a while. And, um, and on his desk was a piece of lucite about the size of that card. And it was encased in the lucite was a handwritten note. And it said, thought for the day. You can be too big for God to use, but you cannot be too small. And it was signed Nellie Wilson Reagan. And um, then around the Oval Office, in discreet places, not, you know, framed on the wall, but just about note card size, I mean business card size, just quotes from Isaiah and other places in the Bible. He had those around. I remember one more quickie about him, then I'll tell you one funny one. So during the campaign in 84, we did his campaign in 84, nationally. During the campaign in 84, we had a Bible study at Reagan Bush. And so somewhere in that summer, um, the campaign staff was invited over to the White House for, for reception. And so there's a receiving line. and. And I'm watching, and I've been associated with Reagan enough that I'm, I'm you know, I, I know the routine of receiving, keep moving. So about this one administrative assistant type young lady from the campaign gets up to Reagan and she says, she invites him to the Bible study. And then he takes, he takes her hand and, he, and I looked at his hand and he grips it with both hands and he kept her talking until she was, until she becomes, what else to talk about? And what I, what I, and I, and I've seen that 
in other situations with him, but he was, to me, he was so hungry to hear something, you know, my prayers are with you, God bless you, you're in my thoughts. He's so starving for that spiritual connection with anyone that would dare advance it that when it, when it came along, he did, he did not let it pass. And uh, so one more other, one more. I'll, oh, dear. Well. Okay. Lessons from life. I'm going to talk to you about my marriage. Sue and I were married 39 and a half years. Most of those, a good portion of those, I can't say most, many of those years were good. About seven or eight of those years were bad. They were real bad. The last 11 were the best. And um, uh, we had to get uh, marriage, marriage counseling. We did. We chose to do that. And uh, uh, we had to, we went to this lady, and she said she wanted us to read this Men Are From Mar Women, Mars, Venus, that book. She said, now, Sue, you read your copy and underline the things you learn about men. And Steve, you read your book and underline the things you learn about women. Well, I am following instructions. I mean, at that time... I'd been in alcohol recovery for about a year and a half. I am following instructions. I'm not cutting corners. So I'm doing as I've been told. So years later, I asked Sue one day, I said, Sue, did you ever read that book? She said, no. And she giggled. I did read yours, though. <laughs> to be sure you were underlining the right things. <laughs> and uh, uh, to my surprise, I have so much more about this I would love to share, but to my surprise, uh, when she died, the Sunday after, she died, she died on a Wednesday, and so on Sunday after, I'm at our Sunday school class, and they uh, gets to a place in the Sunday school class where they expect me to say something. And so what, one of the things that came out at that moment was, about Sue, that there was nothing left unsaid between us. And, um, and that wasn't just an emotional, I wish that were true, that is to this day, to the best of my memory, that, that was true. There was nothing left unsaid. About um, I don't know, for about four or five years I'd read something that the divorce rate in this country is about you know 50 percent and but but of couples who hold each other and pray together the divorce rate is like one in a thousand so i told sue about that article and she said i said let's start doing that so not every mo morning but probably three to five days a week we would, in the morning, we would hold each other, and one day she would pray, and then the next day I would pray. And, and so I'm always curious, and I wonder why that statistic is so dramatic. The reason I think it's dramatic is 
if you're holding the person that cares about you more than anyone else, and you are praying for them and yourself, and that you, then you hear them praying for you and themselves, uh, there's not going to be much garbage that piles up. And that prayer was a three-minute prayer. And uh, then the other thing, so if by chance you want to, if you know, if you have a spouse, if, uh, that that is just that will pay benefits immediately. A few things usually takes time. That's one that pays off pretty quickly. Then the other thing, let's see, prayer. Uh, well, I had another one that I thought was really important. Oh, uh, men. What men want? Men want to be appreciated. I've, I've concluded. I used to get irritated with Sue when I would leave the house and she would say, where are you going? Uh, oh, are you going that way? Will you mind stopping Kroger or Lowe's or something and get this? In fact, I would get irritated about that. So a friend of mine suggested, Steve, why don't you act like you want to do it? You don't have to want to do it. You don't have to You just act like you want to do that. And so, to my surprise, within less than a week of doing that, acting like I enjoyed that, she started, I could tell she started showing appreciation. Then that made me want to do that more. And I doubt, I don't think there was a day in the last 10 years of our life together that I didn't call her in, during the day or on the way home and say, is there anything I can get for you? Uh, and, uh, and so that was special. So, so it, men, if you want what you want, just put, I think what you want, what I think we want is we want to be appreciated. But Sue didn't appreciate me for you know, killing the bear and bringing home the meat. She appreciated me for caring enough about her to go to the grocery store for her, or to wash a load of clothes, or to make the bed, or that kind of stuff. One last thing, folks. Sue died on June 7, 2007. June 13, 2007. So every day... Most of the past 25 years of my life, I get up in the morning and I do a morning. I got a morning routine, spiritual routine that I do. And uh, one of them, one of those items I do is a gratitude list. Write down five things I'm grateful for. Not the five most important things, but the five things I'm most five things I'm grateful for at that moment. So, since I know I left the house at 5:16 that morning, that meant I would have gotten up at four o'clock. I like to go in early. I'd gotten up at 4 o'clock. I'd done my morning routine. Sue was in the backyard. It signs up at 5 in June. Sue's in the backyard picking up sticks. She hadn't had a cup of coffee yet. And I leave at 5.15. And then within, I believe by the time I got out of the subdivision, she had died. So I think what was is lethal arrhythmia. And um, so she died on a Wednesday. 
I certainly didn't do my morning routine for a few days. I was in shock. And uh, but about a week after or so, when I picked up my journal again to start to try to get back into it, I looked at I looked at the what I had written down of the five things I was grateful for on on uh, June 13. Number three on the list of the morning she died was uh, I put down I think my wife is hot. And uh, um, and I thought it was she had just turned 62. I thought it was pretty cool that I was more physically attracted to her at 62 than I was when she was 20. And I think that, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the tough years we had because if we hadn't had the tough years, I don't think I would have been doing a gratitude list in 2013. Anyway, thank you for your time. Good to be here. Thank you.